And uh, I think it's probably one of the greatest studies that, uh, that we ever took. It's going to be a long study. Uh, but um, from where our church is at, you know, you know, we've got our people ministry, our counseling ministry up and running. And so many of you are working with people and, uh, and all the young couples and the moms and dads and the, and the folks that come into our church, you know, through discipleship and, and all of the different areas that uh, we have. Uh, I think it's where it, we need to be. There's so much each week. And uh, I, obviously, I can move through it a lot faster, but I don't want to do that because I, I want all of you to glean out of here exactly what we need to have, and I think that's vital for us to do that. So you remember that um, last week, we started chapter 10, verses 14, 15, and 16. And I define for you uh, one of the most important concepts, uh, concepts in uh, all of life of, uh, in the aspect of learning, and that's how to lay up knowledge. And that's what we talked about last week. It's the only verse we got to. And today, I want to lay out some more great, simple, practical lessons in life throughout the Proverbs. We talked about last week of building your own library of biblical principles in your own heart, in your own mind. Uh, We likened it to a lawyer who uh, has a law library that has all the case laws that whenever he goes to trial, he has the ability to pull out those books to find out exactly what the law says about it as he builds his case. And that's exactly what we ought to be doing with the Word of God. We ought to get so familiar with it and hide the Word of God in our heart and do all of the principles that we put so much emphasis on around here, that you actually form for yourself that library where in any given situation, in any scenario, uh, you're able, to, uh, you're able to, um, to have total access to Bible solutions, biblical solutions, uh, that you can give people exactly what the Bible says in any given scenario. We talked about God's mind and God's viewpoint becoming our mind and our viewpoint. And we had kind of fun with last week's message I, uh, on laying up knowledge. I, I showed you the seven absolutely vital classes uh, that we should have in every church that when you go to school to learn up, lay up knowledge and go to God's school. We talked about the first class being a math class, how that everything in the Bible is a, everything in life is a mathematical formula. We talked about biology class, understanding that you're your body, soul, and spirit, and understanding each one of them. A history class, knowing your heritage and where you've come from. Government class, realizing that when Christ comes back at the second coming, he's establishing his government. We talked about that. An English class. Uh, the Word of God was written to you in English, one of the last, of the last universal language of, of the world. We talked about music class and how music developed and how it all rises and falls on the Word of God. And then, of course, the seventh class was a science class, showing you how the Bible is the most scientific book the world has ever seen. Now, today we'll pick it up where we left off last week, and I want to read verses 14 through 17. Here's what it says. Wise men lay up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. The rich man's wealth is his strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. The labor of the righteous tendeth the life, the fruit of the wicked to sin. He is in the way of life that keepeth instruction, but he that refuses reproof error. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we love you so much and thank you for that all that you do for us and for what you've given us and for the good folks that have come out today. 
And Lord, I thank you for the giving spirit of these folks that, that every, every other week they're down at Restart and they're down there at Turnaround and they're down there helping out people who are less fortunate and giving them water and giving them food and giving them the gospel. And Lord, it just warms my heart to see uh, the people of this church just gravitate to ministry. Lord, uh, it's wrong for a church to keep putting in, putting in, putting in the people, the Word of God, <clears throat> but then those people uh, and the church, as a church, not going back out and doing something with it. And Lord, help us, Father, in all that we do, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, last week I ended in verse 14, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. Now, from a practical standpoint, as we would see that in everyday life, a man who refuses to learn God's word uh, and who won't lay up wisdom will find himself in a whirlwind cycle of problems. And in time, it'll just completely engulf him. And uh, it's the only, and things only get worse. They never get better. One of the things that you want to remember when you don't deal with issues in your own life, the longer you let them go, the worse they get. No problem ever fixes itself. You have to be proactive in getting it done. And uh, now for an unsaved man, for an unsaved man, that's death and dying going to hell. For an unsaved man, death can lie around any corner. There's no rhyme or reason to his life. The book of, Proverbs, uh, book of Ecclesiastes makes it very clear that, you know, he's like the animals. Uh, he, he, he has a chance at dying. There's no, there's no protection of him whatsoever. Now, I'm not saying that somebody couldn't be praying for him and God intervene in that way, but just your garden variety unsaved person, he has absolutely no uh, control over his destiny. And uh, death can come at any time, as you see it many, many times. And the verse says that he'll always be near destruction, right around the corner, uh, around the next turn, one unfolding disaster after another. But for a saved man, a Christian uh, who now refuses the instruction of God's Word and lives his life his way, uh, it's going to be one disaster after another. All of us, if you've been saved for any length of time, all of us have seen uh, disasters unfolding in God's people's lives simply because they won't do what they need to do. Around every turn in life, there'll be an issue waiting to unfold. And after a life of 20, 30 years of making bad choices and the compacting effect, it will literally destroy a person. I've seen the complete breakdown and total destruction of families. I've talked to you before about the cycle of families in crisis, how that every generation uh, will get worse if God doesn't inject himself or he's not brought into the family. Many, many times we see families that just get continually worse and worse and worse. And I've seen families that they started out where a uh, long time ago they believed in God, they went to church, they had a Bible, they believed the Bible, but then something went wrong. Now, they didn't deal with their kids the way that they should, and their kids grew up less involved in church, wanting nothing to do with the Bible, <clears throat> They raise their family. Their kids are even farther away from it. And you know what? By the time you get four or five generations down the road, you got a family that has no concept of God. The thing that I love about so many of you that so many of you came into this church <clears throat> in that kind of scenario. You've come from families that didn't care about the Bible. You come from families that didn't care about church or anything. And what you have done is you've broken that cycle. 
you have, you have put an end in your family to that ever happening. And from this point on, you're going to ensure that in your family, the next generations on down stay with God. Boy, that's a commendable thing. And that's exactly what uh, needs to happen. Last week uh, in, our, in our seven classes, in history class, in the music class, I, I told you how that in Europe, you can actually trace, you cannot separate the Bible and God from history. I don't care where you go. And in Europe, you begin to see, as we showed you in the music class especially, and also the history class, how in European history, all of Europe's success and failures, all of their high points and low points, are always built around what they did with the Word of God. When the Reformation broke loose in the 1500s with Martin Luther, it swept across Europe. In the next hundred years, the gospel, uh, was, which was once repressed by the Roman Catholic Church, now the shackles were off. And the gospel went across Europe. Czechoslovakia under John Hess. The whole nation, almost without exception, had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It was true in Europe. In France, in Germany, under Martin Luther, in Scotland, in England, you found that across Europe, when the Bible broke free and the gospel was displayed and the word of God had come into flourishing and was everywhere and people could read it, a revival broke across Europe. And it was a time when Europe, the gospel just penetrated Europe in an incredible way. And every country you see that all down through history. But then we find the entering of what we call in church history the Counter-Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church may have been out, down, but she wasn't out. And what took place after that period of time was what is called, as I just said, the Counter-Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church coming back to reclaim and break that chain in the lives of families. And she did it a number of ways. She did it through the Jesuit movement, but one of the ways that she did it was what is called in history the Oxford movement. The Oxford movement was a plan by which Jesuit Roman Catholic priests actually went into Europe into Protestant seminaries and began to take the courses, uh, even though they were under the... Uh, the uh, disguise of the Roman Catholic Jesuit system, they went into Cambridge, went into Oxford, and went into all of the Protestant Bible uh, colleges in Europe. They graduated, and they went and pastored Protestant churches. And then they began the destruction of undoing what God had done. And after 100, 200 years of doing that, it really brought Europe to her knees. And it was an incredible thing that had happened in what they did. Slowly, very slowly over time, they destroyed the great Reformation and the great churches. And it's one of the most remarkable things. And after three or four generations, you find that with the rise of the Roman Catholic philosophers like Augustine and Alcon and Thomas Aquinas... It moves into once the counter-reformation takes place and they begin to get away from God and get away from the Bible. It gave birth to the, to the humanist movement in Europe. Now you found guys like Thomas Hobbes, George Berkeley, David Hume, Christian Wolff, Voltaire, Kant, Frieschenbach. And then it winds up in about 1844 and 1900 with a guy by the name of Nietzsche. And Nietzsche puts the icing on the cake. Because this great philosopher, after Europe, had just went through one of the greatest absolute revivals of the Word of God, bringing forth salvation to the continent of Europe, now because of the 
generations slowly eroding. Now we come where Nietzsche shows up and he makes a grand illusion statement to all of Europe that God is now dead. You'd go to Europe today, Europe is totally, completely amoral. They have no concept of God. They have great churches. The pastor in those churches, every one of them are atheists. Every one of them, their churches is now a humanistic church. We talk in our church, in our country, <clears throat> you say, well, I go to this church or I go to that church. We ask the question, or you ask the question, does your church use the King James Bible? That's always the question that you ask in America, or you do. But if you were in Europe today, and you talked to somebody that was a Lutheran, or Presbyterian, in England, in France, in Czechoslovakia, wherever, and you'd ask them about their church, you would not ask them what Bible they believe. You wouldn't even ask them if they believe in salvation. You know what you would ask them? You would ask them if their pastor believes in God or is your pastor, pastor an atheist. Now, who in the world could pastor a church being an atheist? But it happens in Europe today simply because of those generations of getting away from the Word of God. And it happens in families. It happens in families. It can happen in your family. That same process of very slowly getting away from the Word of God, and that your kids will always do less than you do unless you stay on top of them. Every generation will get farther away from God unless that family unit is held together by the ministry and the principles and the things that we preach to you out of the Bible here. Families go the same way that Europe went, where you can find Europe now countries that once were teeming with the Word of God. You can find families in America that were once standing on the Word of God that no longer believe anything about the Word of God. Look at verse 15. The righteous man's wealth is a strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. It says the rich man's wealth is a strong city. Now, in a worldly sense, uh, that's true about a man with riches, an unsaved man. First part of the verse. Because a rich man can hide behind his money. A rich man can use it as a lever in life. A rich man can use it to manipulate circumstances and people. A rich man can protect himself from poverty and want and needs if he has a lot of money. He can buy whatever he wants. A rich man, is, his, his wealth is a strong city because he can defend himself. He can buy the best lawyer. I, I think of when O.J. Simpson uh, got caught killing his wife and that other guy way back when, that he had the lawyer group called the Dream Team. And it was five or six or seven of the greatest lawyers the world had ever seen. But it probably cost him uh, $2 million a day. But if you got the money, your money can become a strong city and you can defend yourself with it. A rich man, he trusts in his money to get him through. And it becomes a strong city, a really a stronghold in his life. I, I think back of the Great Depression. I know most of you young kids don't know what the Great Depression was. You think that was the day you were born and your mom was greatly depressed because you were. But it was more than that. The Great Depression was the fall of, of the stock market in 1929. And I know nobody here probably was born in 1929. Or when were you born? 34. You probably remember the Great Depression a little bit, don't you? You probably do. He was born in 1934. And the stock market broke in 1929. And almost overnight, 
almost every millionaire in America and then it spread across the world. Every millionaire who on Tuesday had millions and millions of dollars in the bank was flat busted broke on Wednesday. And the suicide rate was unbelievable. The suicide rate was horrific. Rich people who had lost their strong city, who had lost every dime, now they got to go to work. They had lost everything. And they could not face the reality that what they trusted in was now gone. And they killed, they killed themselves. I mean, the Hudson River in New York looked like 55-gallon drums floating down the river. There were so many that jumped off the bridge. But there's a biblical application to it. For we know that in life, there's two kinds of riches. There's the world's riches, and then there's the true riches found in Luke chapter 16, verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You know, and when you talk about a Christian strong city, in the Old Testament, we see great examples of this. The Old Testament had as their main defense around their cities, a wall. And that wall, in many cases, if you study history, those walls were 100 feet high and 40 to 50 feet thick. I mean, they could get whole Roman legions marching down the, the causeways on top of those walls. They were incredibly huge. When you go back to Ezra and Nehemiah, after the 70 years captivity, the Jews, when they go back to Jerusalem, Jerusalem has now been sacked by Nebuchadnezzar 70 years uh, before. He burnt the city. He tore down the walls. He did everything. He decimated the city of God. You know, the first thing they begin to do in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, when they begin to rebuild, the first thing they do is they begin to build the wall back up. Now, in a Bible format, the walls of our city, the Bible says that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Each one of you is likened to a, uh, each one of you is likened to a house. And when we put all of our people together this morning, we've got a fair-sized little city, if each of you are a house. And around our city, spiritually speaking, there has to be some protection. <clears throat> now, we don't look at these walls as protection because they're, they're, they're physical walls. And we know that from Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle is a spiritual battle. So our wall is a spiritual wall. And the wall that supports and keeps this church safe is the same wall that keeps you safe. And that is the Bible doctrine that we believe and the doctrine that we hold on to as a church that keeps all attackers at bay, that they can't penetrate your life. This is why I'm such a stickler on you learning the principles. This is why I stay on you all the time, and I'm sure some of you wish I would change the format, but I'm not going to, because the only thing that's going to get you through life is learning that book, living that book, and keeping that book, because therein, those principles, those doctrines are the walls. There's a great example of this in Matthew chapter 4. You remember in Matthew chapter 4 when Christ, uh, the devil came to Christ and he tried to get tempt, uh, tempt him to uh, do some things? The devil comes up the first time and he says, I want you to get, you need to do this. If you're really God, do this. <clears throat> and instead of Christ falling for the temptation, <clears throat> he simply said, it is written. And the devil come at him three times. And three times the Lord said back, one, it is written. Two, it is written. Three, it is written. And the Bible says that after that, the devil went his way. You know Why? 
Because the devil knew that as long as you're going to the book and you're going to counter whatever temptation he throws at you with it is written, he got nowhere to go. You want the devil to leave you alone? You want, the, you want the unclean spirits or the forces of this world that maybe sometimes give you a tough time? You want them to bamboozle? You know what you do? It is written. It is written. The devil can get in every, and I know, you know, let me tell you something. If a vampire ever comes your way, forget the crucifix. Amen. You've had dealings with those, have you, William? <laughs> If a werewolf comes your way, forget the silver bullets. You don't need any holy water. If anything in the demonic world ever comes your way, all you need is the scriptures. Because they can't stand that book. And that's why, if you ain't figured it out already, the devil's been on a crusade for the last couple of hundred years to take that book out of your hand. Because when he does that, you have no wall. You have no defense. And down you'll go. Nothing will stop the devil in his tracks quicker than the word of God. It's the wall that makes a strong city. It's not the people in the city. It's not how many houses you have or how big they are, how nice they are. It's the wall around that city. And when it comes to a church, it isn't how big it is. Here's how grandioso it is that you got a restaurant and a spa over here and you got this over here and you got a $90 million sound system. That's not what makes it strong. It isn't even the fact that you may have 2,000, 3,000, or 4,000 people. That's not what makes it strong. What makes the church strong is what made the city strong, and that's the wall that's around it, and that's Bible doctrine. That's Bible doctrine. When we started our church 11 and a half years ago, some of you were here back then, and you'll remember the first sermon and the first lessons that we preached, that I preached, was out of Ezra and Nehemiah on building the wall around the city. We actually went back and showed how that Jerusalem was in a great a heap of rubble, completely destroyed by the world system. And I likened that to the world that we live in today, where the world has really destroyed the church. And they begin to build the wall and that wall was the, the beginning of them getting it back where it needed to be. Because that wall represented the, their protection and their strength in a physical sense. And I told you way back then, when we started our church, the first thing we were going to do was build a wall. And we started to teach Bible doctrine. We started to take the people that were saved on that foundation, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We began to teach you the Bible doctrines, and here we are today. Here we are today. And a church of a 250 people or so like this one can be a formidable offense when it wants to go out and do the work of the Lord Jesus Christ when everybody has built the wall. And the wall is the doctrine that we believe, our only real protection. And this church will be, uh, uh, only be as strong as it is to, uh, as, it, as you build the wall. And then I remember I showed you uh, that there were nine gates in that wall. And the gates <clears throat> were where people went in and people came out. And you remember I likened, you had the sheep gate and the fish gate and the old gate and the valley gate and the dung gate, the fountain gate, the water gate and the horse gate and the eastern gate. <clears throat> and then I went through and I showed you how that each one of them was an entrance into that city. And every one of those was going to match up to a ministry we wanted to have to bring people into this church. The first one was a sheep gate. 
So I remember telling you that if you ever want to build a strong church and you want to have a relationship with God, it starts with you understanding the sacrifice that God made for you. The fish gate, winning people to Christ. The old gate, our heritage. We've probably taught church history three or four times in the 11 years. The valley gate, our compassion for people. And on and on it went through all of those gates. We talked about it in Bible study just a couple of weeks ago. Last week in our class, I told you about, in history class, the seven Baptist distinctives that, have, that, that, that the true Bible line has held all the way down through history. And I know that there's a lot of goofy Baptist churches out there. I, I understand that. There's goofy people wherever you go. I mean, uh, it's a thing where you're never going to find a, a denomination or a group of people or any church where you don't have somebody in there that doesn't, you know, that isn't on, that just not where they need to be. That's just the way it is. But overall, you found that those churches held to seven major Bible doctrines. Last Thursday night, we talked about why we don't compromise, why we don't drop our standards so we can reach more people. And I told you that I'm not interested in reaching people. I'm interested in preaching the truth and let the truth reach the people. That's the way you got to do it. But those seven Baptist distinctives that they've been come to and called down through church history, the first one is eternal security. Understanding how, what really happened the day you got saved. And when you do understand that, you can never doubt the fact that you could lose your salvation. The septum was the premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not amillennial. We're not postmillennial. We don't believe that the Lord's going to come back after man makes it good. We believe the Lord's going to come back, kick the fire out of everybody, and then make it right. That's what we believe. We believe that salvation is for adults or anybody over the age of accountability. We believe that salvation is through the blood of Christ, not through being baptized. We believe that power in the blood, not in the tub. We believe that you get saved by the blood of Christ. We understand our relationship to the nation of Israel. How in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11, the great book that is written to the church that defines what the church is to believe. We know where we come from. We believe in the deity of Christ. We don't believe that he was a begotten God. We believe that he was the only begotten son. We believe that Jesus Christ was everything that God was. And then the seventh one is we believe that the word of God is the word of God. We don't believe we have it in some mystical, magical manuscripts. We believe that we have the inerrant, perfect Word of God in your lap this morning. That's what, those are the things that they believed. These form the wall around the church, the foundation of the church, a city, to make it a strong one. Now, the last part of verse 15 says this, the destruction of the poor is their poverty. Now, in a spiritual sense, this is real easy to kind of see here. A fool gets destroyed because he has absolutely no defenses against the world system. That's why he gets destroyed. He can't make good choices because he has no understanding. So he just keeps making bad choices. And then his pride gets involved when somebody tries to show him something different, and off he goes. And, of course, with each bad choice comes a consequence. A payday. You know, it's called the law of sowing and reaping in the Bible. People say all the time, crime doesn't pay. Sin doesn't pay. Yeah, it does. Sure it does. Bible says the wages of sin is death. There's a payday for sin. Don't mislead anybody. Well, crime doesn't pay. Sure it does. Well, sin doesn't pay. Oh, yes, it does. There's a payday coming. 
There's a payday coming. Oh, R.G. Lee, an old Southern Baptist fire preacher. He used to preach a great message. Payday someday. Boy, it was a great message. Long gone home to be with the Lord. But there's a, there's, there's a payday coming. And you, know, and, you know, and you need to see this. You know what absolutely destroys uh, a person uh, in, his, in his own poverty? It's, it's what he brought about by his own choices. We love to blame our problems on somebody else. We lose everything we've got. We have this problem or that problem. We like to blame our, our scenario on everybody else out there. But the truth of the matter is, what absolutely destroys anybody is our own poverty, which we have choos- chosen uh, to put into our life. And I want to say this. Dumb, stupid choices that we all make, you need to limit them as much as you can. (laughs) Because dumb, stupid choices will get you killed. Last Sunday night, I I couldn't believe it. That idiot man who put in that idiot suit to have a 30-foot anaconda snake eat him alive so he could document it. Now, you know what? There's something wrong with a guy that would do that. He had this skin diver suit on with a helmet on. That was the biggest snake I have ever seen in my life. It was on national television, National Geographic. And he had been bragging about he was going to have this snake that was going to eat him alive. And I asked myself, I said, what then? (laughs) And then he explained that if you scare the snake, it regurgitates and throws up what it just Hey, Oh, I'm really going to bank on that. Let me tell you something. If a snake has got enough guts to eat me in front of 20 people with TV cameras, ain't much going to scare him. It took 20 people to pick up this snake. It was, it was as long from here to back where Danny's sitting. It was that big around in some places. It was a big snake. And, and you know, he's down there sticking his head around the snake's mouth. <laughs> Like, it's going to prove something here. That's stupid. Amen. The snake, you know how the anacondas can eat something a lot bigger than what they are, don't you? They dislocate their jaws. And so they can make their mouth a lot bigger that they may not, their mouth may only be that big, but they can get a whole pig in or whatever because they dislocate their jaws and then they can get a lot more in it and then their jaws go back together again. Like some of you. (laughs) And... And he's down there, honestly. He's down there laying in front of that snake, doing that with his head. And the snake tried to, and the snake said, I need him, forget it, man. But then, I mean, come on, what is this guy thinking? Snakes don't eat live animals. They kill them first. They're called constrictors. So this 30-foot snake, Coils himself around this idiot in this suit. You can't even see the guy. And it's squeezing him. And they got two-way radio. Now, you know what this conversation is all about. (laughs) This guy, he's trying to be calm because he's on national television. (laughs) He's trying to be calm. And he's saying, okay, I think you better get me out. He's really crushing me in here. I think he's going to break my arm. And 20 guys run in and unravel this snake. 
What did you think he was going to do? Dumb choices will get you killed. I mean, I'm telling you. And I yet I watched that. He's saying, my arm, my arm is going to break my arm. Well, you don't want to want him to eat you. And I watched that snake coil around that guy. And for a while, you know, the guy was, when a snake was coiling around him, he thought he had something going. He's going like this. Okay, we got to go. But that snake completely got him going. And then it was going to crack. And if they wouldn't have got him out, that snake would have broke him like a pretzel. And I know it was stupid and I know it was goofy, but I couldn't help but watching that and think to myself, you know what? That's exactly what the world does. It coils itself around you and one or two coils don't look too bad, does it? Maybe three, you can survive. But pretty soon that old world coils itself completely around you and it crushes everything in you. That was a dumb, stupid choice. Got to got him killed. I think of that Australian guy, Steve... Who? Irwin. Yeah. Here's a guy. He played. He, 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 was, he was. He was the goofiest guy, anyhow. I mean, he would always get in front of cobras, and you know, and they're sticking up at him like that. And he say, "Wow, mate, that was pretty close, wasn't it?" You know. <laughs> and he goes skin diving with a with a an eel who's probably stingray. Span- stingray. Oh, who? Stingray. A stingray. Yeah. Well, they're cousins to eels. Yeah. <laughs> and he's down there playing with his stingray, and it swips around with this stinger on the end and kills him. That's stupid. I mean, after I watched that snake down in the Amazon, I didn't even go. I had some things I wanted to buy. I wasn't even going to go on Amazon.com. I wanted nothing to do with it, man. I was out of there. And then how about this one? There's some choices you make will get you killed because they're stupid. Did you see the one about the lion whisper? Where he goes into this jungle and he stands on the path and he starts calling it and a 900 pound lion runs up, jumps on him with his paws, knocks him down and he's there playing with him and the lion is licking him like they're good buddies. We get the idea that these wild animals have human tendencies who licks you today will eat you tomorrow (laughs) he wasn't licking you because he likes you he was sizing you up how you tasted (laughs) now making decisions like that will get you killed I remember last year a year and a half ago at SeaWorld they had a five ton Five-ton killer whale who did tricks. And this woman got in with the whale, rode around holding on to his dorsal fin. It would hold fish up. He'd come up and grab the fish. She'd get in there and swim around with him, and everybody would clap and all those things. And then one day he decided to take her for a ride, and he killed her. And everybody says, what a tragedy. But he says, what happened? What happened? I don't want, what happened? It's called a killer whale. It's not a latte whale. It's a killer whale. What do you mean, what happened? A killer whale did what a killer whale does. He killed her. 
I see people all the time make some of the stupidest decisions and gets them killed spiritually, and then they're scratching their head. I wonder what happened. I wonder what happened. I mean, you know, I don't know if they were saved and lost. I don't know. But either way, if they went to hell or they went to heaven, I get you when they finally got into the pearly gates or went to hell, before anything ever happened, everybody there just died laughing. I mean, there's a lot of good ways to die. You're killed in a war. That's noble. You're killed in a car wreck. Not always your fault. But I can just see when you get up to heaven, you know, and, and St. Peter asks you, well, well, how did you get here? Well, I had, I had a big snake try to eat me. <laughs> Peter says, get out of here. You don't even belong up here. <laughs> and the Bible says, and the destruction of the poor is their poverty. Do you know that in life in America, anyhow, no matter how much poverty you're in, in most cases, you can work your way out of anything in time if you want to. One of the things I love about Restart down there, you know, you got all the levels of the families and, and you see this on the street and the people that you work with. Many of those people have Ken there, went into that program and they're, they're, they're making their way back. And there's a thousand organizations like that across this country. Some people will never get back. You know why? They stay in their poverty that they caused on their own all of their life. You know why? Because they won't work to get out of it. It takes work. And in a spiritual sense, it's the same thing. Hey, I always say this. I understand that you're not always responsible for things that happen to you that are bad in life, but you are responsible in working your way out of it. The victim status only goes so far for me. And I know that there's times that I've seen in people that I've worked with that they were truly victims. Something happened to them that, that gave them legitimate victim status. But you know what? You can't stay in victim status the rest of your life. At some point, you've got to realize and you've got to understand that it, maybe it was wrong that it happened to you. Maybe it was unfair that it happened to you. But you know what? I don't know what to tell you. Life's not always fair. You know what you've got to do? You've got to get into the Bible and you've got to work your way out of it. You got to get back. I suggest that people who want that victim status go back to that bookstore and buy a book called uh, by Corey Tenboom, The Hiding Place. There's a lady over there that was a teenager. She was in uh, uh, in Harlem, uh, right down from Amsterdam. I've been in the been in her been in the place there. It's a it's a memorial now. Her dad her dad was a watchmaker, and they they hid Jews during the Nazi occupation of Holland. And they got caught. Her dad was killed. Her mother was killed. Her sister died in Auschwitz. She was sent to Auschwitz, almost died there. She was treated to some of the most inhumane brutality that you ever saw in your life. Raped by the guards, beat by the women guards, starved to death, almost killed, hair's breath from being gassed in the gas chambers. And you know what? When she got out of there, you know what she did? After all of that downtime in her life and all of that tragedy, she was a saved woman. She got in touch with Billy Graham at some point, and she went around this country talking about how great God was and how he delivered her. She never blamed one Nazi one time in her life. In fact, in one of her meetings years later, one of the concentration guard women had come under that thing, came down, and got saved. Amen. Now, let me ask you a question. If she had to go through all of that in the concentration camp for God to use that one woman to get saved, would it have been worth it? Amen. Yes. What is the value of an eternal soul? 
Well, I guarantee you it was worth it, but I also guarantee you that wasn't the only one. And God used her all through her life till she died and went home to be with the Lord. God will give you salvation free, my friend. It is a gift. But from then on, you have to do the work. You have to be a workman, which needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Changing your direction in life is about changing you. The way you think, the way you look at things, the way you apply yourself. And if you're not willing to do that, you're going to stay in the spiritual poverty all of your life. You know what most God's people really are? We go down to the homeless every other week. But you know what? Most of God's people that I meet today, they're absolutely homeless. They got no job for God. They got no direction in their life from God. No purpose in life from God. No place they live spiritually in dwelling with God. They're homeless. They're broke spiritually and they're bankrupt spiritually. And though they may have a house and they may have cars and they may have money, they're just like the people down there at Restart, only in a spiritual sense, they're flat, busted, broke spiritually. Look at verse 16. The labor of the righteous tendeth to life, the fruit of the wicked to sin. Now that's a great proverb. You know, by the time we get through Proverbs here, if you're doing what you got to be doing and getting your notes in there and getting it together, you're going to have this book down. Now he says the labor of the righteous tendeth to life. Okay, there's two things here you want to mark down. First of all, in a doctrinal sense, that's a reference to Christ's labor on the cross where the Bible says he finished the work, a righteous work, and it tended to life, you and me getting saved. John 19, 30, when he was on the cross, right before he died, he says, it is finished. What? The, the finished work of Christ. He, he had fulfilled the law. He'd done everything he was going to do, and now that righteous work tended to life because you and I got saved through it. In an inspirational application, it's, it's you and me. It's my labor for God. After I'm saved, get into the word of God, build a righteous relationship with him. And then because I've got God's righteousness inside of me, Jesus Christ, I can do a righteous work and it tends to life. Other people get saved. Now, the verse says the labor of the righteous tendeth to life, the fruit of the wicked to sin. Look at Romans chapter six. And you want to put this reference in by this verse. Romans chapter six, verse 20, 21, 22 and 23. It's a great verse. Here's what it says. For when ye were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. See that thing? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you see that? When we were unsaved, our fruit was sinful, and it produced sin. But now you're righteous, now you're saved, it tends to life. Everlasting life, verse 22. You know, no Christian, we talk about, well, he's a fruitless Christian. No, that's not true from a Bible standpoint exactly, because every Christian bears fruit. It's just the kind of fruit you bear. Israel in the Old Testament was told to bear the right kind of fruit, but they never did. They bore the wrong kind of fruit. And the Bible says that you're going to bear fruit as a Christian one way or the other. You're going to either bear fruit that's God's fruit or you're going to bear the world's fruit. It's just that simple. 
Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is as a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. See? Now verse 17 says this, He is in the way of life that keepeth instruction. Notice a way of life. A lifestyle of keeping God's principles and using them. The term the way is used all the way through the Bible. It's one of the most used terms in all the scriptures. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But Proverbs 2, verse 20 says that we're to walk in the way of good men. You ought to walk in the way of men who are good men who follow the Bible. Proverbs 4, 11 says God teaches us in the way of wisdom. Proverbs 6, 23 says, for the commandment is a lamp and the law is light and reproof and instruction are the way of life. Proverbs 8.20 says, God leads in the way of righteousness. Proverbs 10.29 says, the way of the Lord is strength. And Proverbs 23.19 says, God's word will give, uh, give uh, uh, guide our way. He'll guide us in our way. And from the book of Proverbs, would you find this term, the way of God? It's now been defined for us. It's not some spooky thing that you've got to spend a lot of time meditating over. The way of God is simply to follow his instructions, to follow what he says. Now, the last part of verse 17 says, but he that refuses reproof error. When my kids and I, were, my kids were growing up, we always had a, a funny verse that we always gave to each other that when we wanted to get at each other, and it's based on what Jesus said that describes in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. And in that verse, Jesus said, you do, eight, you do greatly err not knowing the scriptures. And every time my kids would do something, I'd always say, you do greatly err not knowing the scripture. And to this day, we'll throw it back and forth with each other. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 5 is a great verse. It's an incredible commentary on life. It says, it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Now, that's a great commentary on life. You know that? You know, a fool will always sing about his problems. Just listen to country western music. I'm nothing against country western music, but the, the verse is true. In the, in the jazz era, we have what we call blues. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, sad songs. Because a fool will always put his feelings of what he's going through and what he, uh, you know, to, uh, to uh, we won't take rebuke. Otherwise, he'll make a song out of it because he's a fool. A fool will always sing about his problems, but a wise man will always go to the Word of God and solve his problems. There's the difference. There's the difference. First Timothy, but see, people don't like rebuke. People don't like to, to be told against what they want to hear. And the Bible says that he that refuses rebuke, you make an error in life. Another bad choice. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, familiar verse, all scriptures given by God is profitable for doctrine, for proof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. But proof, uh, proof, uh, reproof and correction are part of what the book does for us. He doesn't just give us what's right. He doesn't just show us the right way to go. He shows us what's wrong with us, and then he shows us how to correct that. Proverbs 6.23, I gave it to you a minute ago, says reproofs and instructions are the way of life. Real Bible-based relationship with God is the ability to take reproof and correction and rebuke, realizing that it only makes you better 
And it's just as much a part of the Christian life as any blessings of God is. They go hand in hand, negative and positive. In dealing with people, and I know it starts with you and me. You hear me say it all the time. But that has always been the key, whether they make it or not. And uh, you, you need to see this because many of you work with people. Many of you start working with people and they go on for a while and then they don't want to finish. They, they start to come to church and then pff, they don't go to any church. You meet them someplace, they come here, they get the, start to get discipled, they get all excited about it, but then something happens. And many of you ask yourself the question, what happened? I, you've asked me what happened. I'm going to show you what happens. You hear me say all the time in dealing with people that you have to go through probably 10 or 12 people to keep one or two because you get so many people that don't want to do what the Bible says. And in every case, this will be the issue. I've never seen it fail. They start out fine. They come to church. They get excited. They see all the fun things we do. They get discipled. They come to Sunday morning, Thursday night. They come down to restart. They get all excited about the Bible and God and learning. And then at some point, they're going to set aside. They're going to go no farther. At some point, they're going to stop dead in their tracks. And in time, they're going to back out and quit everything they do. And there's a thousand excuses that they'll give you. And I've heard them all. But the man of understanding will know why from the book of Proverbs. Let me tell you something. I'm glad that many of you have come to this church and you new folks, you old folks, you're here, you're pretty much stuck with it. But you know, you ones that come in, you know, all you young couples and singles and moms and dads, you know, I'm thrilled that you're here. But I want to tell you, and you look around and you see, you know, come to Bible study. We talk about exciting things and, you know, we laugh and fun. We have a good time. We don't take too many things seriously in life. We laugh at ourselves. We laugh at everything around us. We just have a good time. And I, and I watch that. I, and, but I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you, that's all good, and we're not going to stop that because that's part of just who we are and all of that. But I want you to understand something. Here's the problem. The more you begin to get into your Bible, the more that Bible begins to get in you. When Christ comes into your life, and dwells inside you. He wants a dwelling place that's comfortable. So you know what he does? He, he comes in and he looks around and he says, we got to do a little house cleaning here. This is not where I can be comfortable. So he says, this has got to go. This has got to go. You can keep that. This has got to go. This has got to go. And you know what the real bottom line is? We don't want to let it go. There's one thing my wife and I never do, ever, 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 together, and that's clean out the garage. <laughs> it's World War III. The fact that you walk in my garage and it's all scattered everywhere, I know where everything's at. She'll go in there and she'll start throwing away stuff that's invaluable. <laughs> Means nothing to her. She doesn't trap raccoons. <laughs> she'll say, you don't need that. Get rid of that. I'm not getting rid of that. I've had that for 20 years. Well, you don't use it. I will someday. <laughs> we just, she stays out of the garage. Better for her. Because it's always a knockdown drag out. But you know what? That's the way it is with God in your life when He comes in. He says, This has got to go. 
You can't keep this. And you want to keep it. And you want to hang on to it. So in the midst of all the fun things, once you start getting into the Bible and you start growing in the Bible, God starts cleaning out the house. And there becomes the point of your resistance. You'll go so far, but you'll refuse the reproof as it gets a little deeper as you get deeper in the Bible. You can get through discipleship. It's not offensive. But boy, I'll tell you what. You start coming to Thursday night Bible study on a regular basis, you start getting into the upper levels of teaching, and you start getting coming on Sunday morning on a regular basis, when we start to get into the Bible, that Holy Spirit of God starts walking up and down these aisles and looking in your garage door and saying, that's got to go. This has got And you know what? You know it needs to go. Because I know what she's saying is true. I haven't caught a raccoon in 20 years. But who knows when the apocalypse of zombies come that may all we have to eat. I'm keeping them. But I know they're no good. I got stuff in there that I don't even, I don't even understand why it's there. There's wheels on big dots. I don't even know where they came from. But they're there, and you never know when you may have to have wheels to put on something. So I won't get rid of it. And how many times do we have that lame, stupid, ridiculous argument with God? God says, it's got to go. The difference is, I'll tell her to stay out of the garage and she will. will. You tell God to stay out of the house, he won't. He won't. And there's the, there's the point of resistance. You know, the Bible's a magnifier. The Bible's like a telescope. I never forget... You know, all those pictures over there, you know, I've taken those. Astronomy was always part of my life. But I got my first telescope when I was probably 13 or 14 years old. And it was no magnificent thing. It was not a nice tripod, but I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. I had trouble getting it to work, you know, and you couldn't find it. It didn't have no viewfinder on it. I couldn't find the moon, and you know, and I, and I, I just cranked it. I'll never forget. At one time, boy, and it just all hit me. I, when, I, when I was looking across there, and I was so, I, there's the moon, and it looks so, but I, and then when I just hit it. And man, I mean, I thought, golly. You know, when you look at the moon through the naked eye, it looks wonderful. But you start putting the magnification on it through a telescope, it looks like a pile of rocks. You put 100X on it, look at it 100 times closer, you keep going up to 200, to 400, and you get to about 500, and you look down in there, and you're looking down inside those craters, you see every imperfection on the moon that there is. Rills, craters, broken beer bottles, chewing gum wrappers, I mean the whole nine yards. And you know that's what the Bible does? When you look at yourself and I look at myself, we look pretty good. But when you put the magnification of the Word of God on you, it shows you the cracks and the crevices, the imperfections. And this is where the resistance comes from. That's what the Bible does. It turns up the magnification. James chapter 1, verse 22 and 25 is another great aspect that says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, there we go, he is like unto a man that beholdeth his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, 
and continue therein. He being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. Now, the Bible not only is it like a magnifying glass, the Bible and it, it, it shows you up through magnification, but the Bible is likened to a looking glass. And you know, and there's a strange thing, a funny thing about mirrors. Mirrors never lie. And you know, you, if you want them to lie, you know what you got to do? You got to, you ever go to the carnival where they got the mirrors that make you look real skinny or big head or huge, you know, and they're, they're not normal mirrors. You, they're bent. They're kind of bent in the middle to give the false impression. And when it comes to real mirrors, real mirrors always show you what you really are. And when it comes to the Word of God, it always shows you what you really are. And many times, just like we don't like to look in the real mirror, we want to look in a confluted mirror that's bent that shows us what we really want to see versus what we really look like. Mirrors never lie. When your wife comes in and she says, Honey, does this dress make me look fat? <laughs> She's asking you to override what the mirror just told her. <laughs> I'm just telling you, mirrors don't lie. It's just that simple. Now, when a Christian complains about a hot message, well, it's too long. It's too negative. No love there. Too harsh. I didn't feel the Spirit of God. He's, he's asking you to override what the mirror of the Word of God just told him about himself. My advice, when it comes to your wife, Tell her the mirror is wrong. <coughs> Learn to pick your battles. Like one guy said one time, he says, Honey, the mirror doesn't look for you, look fat. You're just fat. That was not the answer she wanted to hear. My advice is tell your wife the mirror was wrong and tell the person, the other person, that the mirror was right and they're wrong. Because verse 23 says, It's like beholding a natural face in a glass, who you really are what you're really all about. It's like the old, we talked about it Thursday night, the old nursery rhyme with Snow White and the seven whoever's, the dwarfs, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all, no matter what that old wicked witch tried to do. You know, she was pretty crafty. She knew Snow White was beautiful and much more beautiful than her. So she dressed Snow White in all of these raggedy clothes to make her look terrible. And then she'd go to the mirror and she'd say, she'd put on her best clothes and she'd say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Every time, no matter what she did to Snow White on the outside to make her look bad, that mirror didn't look on what the outside was, it looked on the inside. And every time, Snow White came out. Because you can't hide. And whatever you try to do on the outside, however you try to dress it up, flower it up, when you go to the mirror of the Word of God, It'll cut right through that, and it'll show you what's really on the inside. That's how it works. This is why people won't stay in a Bible-preaching church who won't be honest with themselves. As the Bible says up there in James 1, they deceive their own selves. You know, they, they, won't, they won't be part of it. They can't, they can't keep looking at it and take the rebuke. Verse 25 says, He beholdeth himself and goeth his way. Not God's way. He went his own way. He wasn't going to go, and straight away forgetteth what manner of man uh, he was, as fast as he can. And you know how they do that. When you, you don't like a church that really puts the Word of God to you, 
you go to a church that you can hear whatever you want to hear. And then the second thing you do is you, you surround yourself with people who don't believe the Bible and hold you accountable. You surround yourself with people who are just like you. Birds of a feather flock together. And you separate yourself from the Bible folks who love the Word of God. Verse 25 says, now here's the key. Looking into the mirror and seeing who you really are, getting honest, and then verse 25, continuing therein. You stay in the book. You realize that rebuke is a good thing. And if you want the blessings of God in your life, you want the victories of God in your life, it only comes through the rebuke of God in your life. And when you refuse that, you're a fool. And because he keeps the word that, that uh, uh, he sees, all of it, the positive and the negative, the Bible says he becomes a hearer, of, and I love this, he becomes a hearer of the word in verse 23, and then in verse 25 says, when he becomes a hearer of the word, he also becomes a doer of the work. You can't be a hearer of the word without being a doer of the work. It's just that simple. Greatest example of this that I can think of in, is the Old Testament is in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 35, talking about Samuel. Samuel was the greatest prophet that Israel ever had. He's the last judge, and he's a great one. But when you come down there and look at his life, there's six character qualities of his life, and boy, what a lesson it is. It, itself's a great sermon. And when you come, and it's all in one verse in chapter 3, verse 35. It starts out with saying that the first character quality that Samuel had, he was a faithful priest. He did and stayed with the things that God gave him to do. The second thing about him is he, he had God's heart, was his heart. Psalms 119, verse 11. The third thing, God's mind was his mind. The fourth thing was he built a sure house. The fifth thing, that he walked before the Lord. And the sixth thing, that he was in ministry all every day of his life. And the key to all of this is in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 19, and it's the same key for you. If you're going to make it, if you're going to get to where God wants you to be, and you're going to be the wise man, and you're going to take the instruction, you're going to lay up wisdom, and you're going to get everything, you're going to take it from the good and the bad, the rebuke and the blessings, then it comes down to the key in Samuel's life because he's such a model and it simply says this in 1 Samuel 3.19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And he did let none of his words fall to the ground. He took everything that God said, the good and the bad, the positive and the negative, because he realized that all of it was there for his good. Not just the good things that he liked, but the things that he didn't like. And our passage says that a wise man will lay up knowledge. It says that when he is in God's way, he will take instruction. The good and the bad. The correction and the reproof. Right along with the blessings and the honor, they go hand in hand. I'll leave you with this. <clears throat> when you go home tonight from whatever you're doing tonight, and you walk into your dark house, and you flip that light switch, and the light comes on, and now you can see, and you have light to do whatever you need to do. Remember one simple little thing. It wasn't just the positive wire that turned that light on. It was also the negative wire. You can't do anything in life without a positive and a negative. You can't even light your house 
And you'll never grow to be God's man or God's woman to have all that God wants you to have without the positive wire and the negative wire. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus today. And we love you and we thank you.